You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Paul, for reading our text. We're continuing today in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks at some point, you know that this is a book in the Bible, but it's also a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians, to the, to the church in the city of Corinth. And Paul is writing this letter to them because they had a lot of problems. And so every week, it seems like as we work through 1 Corinthians, every week it's a new problem. You know, what's wrong with the church in Corinth today? And we go through all these problems every week, a new one. It, it kind of, at this point, I don't know about you, but for me at this point working through 1 Corinthians, it kind of feels like, like, like you're on a team, like an athletic team, and it's halftime, and you go in the locker room, and you're just getting destroyed in the game. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're just losing woefully. You're outmatched. You're getting destroyed. You go into the locker room, and the coach just starts going around and telling you all the different things you're doing wrong. We can improve here. We can improve there and here and there, and defense and offense. And you start to feel like at some point, okay, so are we doing anything right? Is there anything good about what we're doing? Was the church in Corinth doing anything right? Now, maybe you've forgotten this, but all the way back in chapter one, when we first started, we said, here's the thing the church had right. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in Jesus. They had that right. And now as we work through the book, we can see more and more, everything else seems to have been wrong. And so we're working through all the things that are wrong, but Paul doesn't say, give up, there's no hope for you, shut it down, walk away. He says, we're going to work with this. You believe in Jesus, we can start with that, and we're going to work through all of these issues. So one problem after another, today's problem in our passage today is with how they're observing the Lord's Supper. When they get together for worship and with the Lord's Supper, problems and how they observe the Lord's Supper. Last week, if you remember, was that weird passage about head coverings. Next week and the next few weeks to come, some interesting stuff we'll be working through about spiritual gifts, how the Holy Spirit works among us as Christians with spiritual gifts. So there's something to look forward to. But today it's the Lord's Supper. And so here's our outline for today. This is in your bulletin if you want to follow along, take notes up here on the screen as well. Our three points for today, very similar to previous weeks where first we're going to talk about the problem in Corinth. What exactly were they doing wrong this time? Second, because it has to do with the Lord's Supper, Paul gives his explanation about the significance of the Lord's Supper. And so we'll talk about that part of our passage. And then third and finally, what should they be doing? What would it look like for them to participate properly in the Lord's Supper? And we're going to see as we work through this, and especially when we get to the end of the message, we'll see that the lesson that the Apostle Paul is teaching here, it's, it's about the Lord's Supper. That's the, the issue on the table, the problem. But he actually has some instructions and a lesson here that applies much more broadly to us as Christians. A lesson about how we should honor the Lord Jesus and how we treat one another in the church. And so that's, that's where we're going. Okay, so first, the problem in Corinth. Here's our first point, and our focus now is on the first five or six verses here, verses 17 through 22. The problem in Corinth. So Paul lays out the problem. 
Okay, so if you're looking in your Bible, if you have that open and want to follow along, here's where Paul begins in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now we can pause right there and think about what Paul has just said to this church. Church in Corinth, when you gather together, like we are gathered together here today, when you gather together, your gathering is not for the better, it's for the worse. Your gathering does more harm than good, Paul says. Like, it would be better if you just didn't meet at all, rather than meeting like you're meeting. Okay, what's so bad about their gathering? Well, Paul explains, verse 18, here's, here's what he says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And we saw a bunch of divisions back in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians when they were arguing over which leader they would follow and so forth. So there's divisions again. But then Paul says in the end of verse 18, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Not all differences are bad, Paul says. In fact, next week when we get to chapter 12 and into spiritual gifts, we'll see, Paul will say, the, the Holy Spirit, the way he works, he divides his gifts among us. And different people get different gifts. We're not all the same in the church. Differences are a good thing. And sometimes, Paul says here, sometimes those differences reveal the heart. They say something about us. And they help us figure out who among us truly knows Christ, where Christ is really working among us, and who doesn't, who's genuine in their faith, Paul says. And that's kind of an interesting thing, who's genuine, who's not, because now Paul's going to say, and here's an evidence, here's something I see among you that suggests that maybe there's something not genuine in your faith. So verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now here's where we get the phrase, the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've heard that phrase used to describe the bread and the cup. We have different words for the bread and cup, by the way. I don't know if you've heard all these, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. You've heard some of those phrases maybe used for it. The Lord's Table and Communion come out of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. The Lord's Supper comes from right here. This is where we get these phrases. They're from the Bible. Okay, so it's the Lord's Supper, but Paul says when you come together and you've got the bread and cup sitting there, you're not actually eating the Lord's Supper. You're eating, drinking, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. Why? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Paul says in verse 22, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You can hear Paul's frustration, his tone, his angst here. It's, the problem is what we talked about with the kids. And it, like the kids said, that would be funny. It's, it's almost comical to think about what's taking place. That when it's time for the Lord's Supper, some people in the church are eating so much that there's nothing left for the others. They're eating like, this is a meal for me to fill up on. 
They're eating until they're full. They're drinking the cup until they're drunk, Paul says. Now, if they used grape juice like we do, that's a lot of drinking, okay, to get drunk. Okay, but they're drinking until there's nothing left for others. It's possible that Paul is exaggerating a bit to make his point here. But I'm not, I'm not so sure. I mean, Paul, Paul seems to be pretty serious here about this, that this is a real problem in the church. And he raises the stakes. He says, by doing this, what are you actually doing? He says, you're despising the church of God. You're humiliating other Christians around you by leaving them nothing. You're treating other Christians as if they don't deserve to participate in the Lord's Supper. They're less than you, lower than you, back of the line, and you'll just take it all for yourself. You're humiliating people. Is that what God's grace is all about, Paul says? Is that what the church is? Doesn't his grace teach us that we're all unworthy, that we're all saved by his grace alone, that we're all one in Christ of equal value? So of all places, the Lord's Supper, you're going to treat other people like this? It's just offensive all the way around, despising what the church stands for. And so Paul rebukes them. It's not the Lord's Supper anymore. You're not even eating the Lord's Supper. And so then Paul, now that he's rebuked them so strongly, Paul takes them back to the basics. Well, what is the Lord's Supper all about anyway? And so now we get to our second point, the significance of the Lord's Supper. Where did it come from? What is it? What is it all about? And that will lead then into how should we partake the Lord's Supper? Okay, so our second point, the significance of the Lord's Supper. And now verses 23 through 26, if you're following in, in the text there. So now Paul says, the Lord's Supper takes us back to the Last Supper. Okay, confused yet? Okay, the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is that night before Jesus went to the cross, when he had a meal together with his disciples in the upper room, they're having their last meal together. And during that supper, the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, this is when Jesus gave to us the Lord's Supper. And so that's what Paul recalls in these verses. So this is verse 23 here. Going back to that night, he says, For I received from the Lord, from Jesus, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, that last night, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, He gave the Lord's Supper, Paul says. And then in verse 26 of our text, Paul gives an explanation, like his own summary here. He says, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul says, look, I'm just passing on to you what I received from Jesus. It goes all the way back to Jesus himself, to his very hands, Jesus' own hands, his own words that night. He's the one who took bread, broke it, 
gave thanks, said, this is my body. Do this, eat this in remembrance of who? Of Jesus. When you eat the bread, remember Jesus, that his body was broken on the cross. It was Jesus who took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink the cup, and when you do, remember who? Jesus and the new covenant we have with God through his blood. Now, the word covenant describes the relationship that we have with God through Jesus. It's one word, covenant, to describe a big picture, to bring together all of what Jesus has done on the cross by his death, so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we repent of our sins, we trust in him, we are given a new relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven, we have new life, we're reconciled with God, and in Scripture, this relationship that we have with God through Jesus is called a covenant relationship. And so the Lord's Supper is reminding us of Jesus, of the covenant, of the relationship we have with God because of Jesus. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, all that comes together to say, in the Lord's Supper, the attention is on who? It's on Jesus, his body. His blood, his work, what he has done for us. It focuses our attention on Jesus. And verse 26, Paul takes it one step further in his summary at the end here. He says, not only is it about remembering what Jesus has done in his death on the cross, meat and drink, but we're also proclaiming what Jesus will do. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. We're saying something, not just remembering, we're saying something when we eat and drink. We're proclaiming that Jesus' death still matters today. He may have died 2,000 years ago on the cross, but it's still relevant today. We're proclaiming his death today, and we're proclaiming his death until Jesus comes again. Now, if you think about this and read between the lines a little bit, if you're proclaiming his death, that he has died, until he comes again, what must have happened in the middle? There's, there's a presumption here that Jesus who died is alive and will come again. And so what is Paul presuming in the middle there? That he's been raised from the dead. He's resurrected from the dead. And so Paul's saying, when you eat and drink, we're proclaiming the hope we have in Christ, that he is alive, raised from the dead and coming again, and his death still saves today. It's a proclamation to the world, Jesus saves, right here, right now. Brent Cup, all about Jesus. Jesus gave them to us to remind us of Jesus, of what Jesus has done, of Jesus' body, of Jesus' blood, that we are saved through Jesus and that Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus is coming again. That's the bread and the cup. And all that message about Jesus, what he has done, who he is, what he will do, all of that comes together in what we call, what scripture calls, the gospel. The gospel message is the very core of what we believe and teach as Christians. 
Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is coming again. We can have a relationship with God through Jesus. It's the greatest message on earth. There's no greater message than this. No greater hope. Nothing better we can do in the world than turn to Jesus and receive his salvation. No better hope than that. No greater joy than that. This is what we proclaim as a church. It's the message we hold out to the world. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is reminding us over and over again about Jesus. What he's done for us, what he still does for others in saving us and others. So with that in mind, the Lord's Supper, all about Jesus. What a shame. What a shame if Christians gather together and eat the Lord's Supper with such selfishness that they bump Jesus aside, take all the focus off of him, and just eat for the sake of their own stomach and their own satisfaction. How offensive. And when the Corinthian Christians, when this church in Corinth was eating the Lord's Supper in the way they were eating the Lord's Supper, what were they proclaiming by the Lord's Supper? What were they saying by eating it as if Jesus isn't really even a part of the picture and it's just about food for my stomach and drink for my stomach? Well, they're saying there's no deeper meaning there. Jesus' death really doesn't mean much of anything. As if Jesus is not alive, not coming again. By their actions, by the way in which they are partaking of the bread and cup, they have gutted the gospel, taken Jesus out of the picture. And so, come back around, remember where Paul started, your meetings are for the worse rather than the better. Your meetings do more harm than good. It would be better, Paul suggests, better not to partake at all than to partake in such a way that says Jesus' death has no meaning. So what should we do then to make sure we are properly participating in the Lord's Supper? Boy, that's, this is heavy. <laughs> I, I want to partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded us to. So how do we do it in a way that truly honors Jesus? And we don't make the same mistakes. This takes us to our third point, proper participation in the Lord's Supper, verses 27 through 34 now. Have you seen the commercials? They, I, they're probably not on anymore. I don't know, but a few years ago or something about the discount double check. Remember that, like do the discount double check? Do you remember those? Commercials? Oh, well. Okay, what else have I got in my notes here? Well, let, okay. Well, that, what I was going to say is, and it was so witty, that Paul tells us in these verses to do a heart double check. Okay, so just pretend. Okay, roll with it. Pretend you know what I'm talking about and I'm not crazy up here. Okay, but Paul says, okay, the, the commercial was do a discount double check, like check around and see if you can save money on your insurance by checking with this other company, whichever company it was. Paul says, do a heart double check. That we should examine our hearts 
lest we sin against the Lord by partaking in a manner unworthy of Jesus. Okay, so here's, here's what he says, verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this, this is heavy and it's going to get heavier, okay? None of us as Christians want to sin against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, okay? So Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, that's exactly what you're doing. It's a problem. And so Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he explains this judgment. Okay, hold on to your hats here. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What Paul is saying here, he's saying their behavior in this church, the way they're behaving is so offensive to Jesus that the Lord Jesus is bringing hardship, sickness into their lives to bring them to repentance or in some cases even causing them to die rather than allowing them to continue in their offense against Jesus that might bring about their condemnation in the end. And so Paul says, illness and death for you, Corinthian church, is a form of mercy from Jesus to save your souls. Whew, I told some of you in Sunday school, get ready, it's a little, little sweaty in this sermon, okay? A little intense, okay? This is what Paul says here. Now, of course, we need to remember there are many other passages in Scripture where sickness and death are not judgment from God for sins, so we have to be careful. We don't just take this passage and reach the conclusion, oh, whenever we're sick or dying, it must be because God is somehow judging us for our offenses against him. That's not what we want to conclude. It's not all the time. But Paul is really laying it on the line here. Saying here, there are very real consequences for us as Christians if we sin against Jesus in such a brazen way. Here in this text, sickness, even death. And the point here, what Paul's trying to push on these Christians is, is to give them a wake-up call. Wake up. Look at your hearts. Take a look in the mirror and look deep in your hearts and repent and change your ways. Judgment is at stake here, Paul says. Perhaps even condemnation. So examine yourselves. And this warning from Paul, this instruction, it can be terrifying to hear, difficult to know how to apply, because when we look in our own hearts, what do we find? What does the scripture tell us? Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can understand their own heart? And we can be very hard on ourselves when we look in our hearts. In my years as a pastor, I've sometimes heard Christians apply this passage in a way that I don't think is in keeping with what Paul is saying. I've known Christians who are, who are very sensitive to their own sins and struggles. 
very hard on themselves. And, and they'll say something like, oh, it's been a rough week. I've not been as faithful as I should be this week. I'm struggling with this or that sin. I just don't think I should participate in communion right now. I just don't feel right about it. I don't feel worthy to eat. I, I just shouldn't do that this week. And, and the irony of, of that kind of thinking is that if, if we're thinking like that, if that's where we're at, then we absolutely should participate in the Lord's table. It's the best thing we can do because the Lord's table is all about God's grace that we don't deserve, how we cannot save ourselves from sin, but we're saved through Jesus, how he's at work in us. It's not about getting our lives together until I'm worthy to eat. It's his grace that makes us worthy. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of his grace and grows us in his grace. So that's not what Paul's talking about here. The problem, again, that Paul's talking about here is that these Corinthians have such hard hearts that they don't feel any shame or guilt for their sins. They're brazen, they're hard-hearted, coming to the Lord's table with no humility, no recognition of their need for God's grace, no acknowledgement of what Jesus has done coming in selfishness, thinking of themselves, not even of others. There's no humility here to receive God's grace. That's the problem at work here. So how can we test our hearts? How can we know if that's where our hearts are at? What if our hearts are there, but we're just too cowardly to actually act it out by eating all the bread and cup in front of everybody. Well, Paul gives a litmus test of sorts in the form of an instruction in verse 33. He says, here's what your conduct will look like when you're coming with the right kind of heart. In verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And I'll have some more to say when I come later, Paul says. It's really very simple at the end of it for Paul. If the table is about Jesus humbling himself for the sake of others, sacrificing himself, giving himself away for us, for our salvation, then if we are thinking of him as we come to the Lord's Supper, we will do the same. Humble ourselves for the sake of others and be their servant. We'll think of others first rather than of me first. We'll want others to have, even if it means I receive less. And this brings us full circle back to the problem the Corinthians were having. This is the very opposite now of what the Corinthians were actually doing. When they came to Lord's Supper, what were they doing? Pushing others aside. So I can get more for me. No recognition of Jesus who sacrificed himself for me and calls me to do the same for others. And so this is the heart test that Paul gives here. Recognizing Jesus, look to Jesus, and you'll know it when in your attitude you're thinking of others before yourself. That's how you can test your heart. Well, as I think about this passage, I 
first, I have to be grateful that as I think back over my years in, in our church here and in other churches as well, in different ways of partaking in the Lord's table in different times and places, I am encouraged that I've never seen anybody behave like I behaved with the kids during the kids' sermon. Okay, I've never actually seen that happen in the church. I kind of wish that I could see that happen because like the kids said, it's comical, right, almost, but I've never actually seen that happen. And so this is another one of those messages in a sense where we might think a whole chunk in the Bible, a whole sermon about something so obvious, don't eat all the bread and cup, but leave some for everyone else. Like, do we really need a whole sermon on that topic? What do we make of this passage for today? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. It seems to me that this passage does speak to the Lord's table specifically, but it also has broader application for us as a church. And this is what we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians, a very specific problem with a very specific solution from Paul, but the principles in play have broader application. Here's broader application again for us. And it makes me think about the various ways that we as Christians, myself included, the various ways that we can be selfish and even selfish in our gatherings as a church, thinking of me first rather than others first. And this can come out in various ways when we come together as a church and think about my preferences and what will satisfy me, what I want, rather than what others need. I want the music my way, or I'll complain. I want the food to be my way. What I want. I want things to happen at the times that are most convenient for me rather than others. I want a Bible study that meets my preferences rather than yours. If it's not on my terms and my way, I just won't come. I won't serve unless it's convenient for me. And then you read passages like this and wonder, well, what would the Apostle Paul say to that kind of attitude when it creeps up among us? Might he not say, well, folks, remember the Lord Jesus who gave? Remember the Lord's table? We're remembering how Jesus gave his body and his blood for us and for our salvation. Why would you think church, the place of Jesus, is a place to come demand for yourself rather than a place to learn to humble yourself? and serve others, and give of yourself. What then if we have a proper attitude of service toward others? Well then, it may not be my favorite kind of worship music, but I appreciate those who are leading and serving, and, and I appreciate that others are led to worship, and so I'll be grateful and sing along. It's not my favorite kind of food, but I'm grateful to those who make it, and I'm happy to help wherever I can. It's not the best time for me, but I'll make it work for the sake of others. I may not be learning as much in this Bible study, but I'll go to encourage others and help those who are learning and growing. It was about 20 years ago now or so, in fact, maybe almost exactly 20 years ago now, that I was traveling with an older pastor. He was kind of a mentor of sorts of mine when I was in seminary. And we were doing this road trip around the East Coast visiting some different churches. And we dropped in to visit 
a church somewhere in Pennsylvania. I can't even remember where we were in Pennsylvania. And this church that we were visiting was a new church plant. It had only existed for maybe a year, maybe less than a year this church had been around. And we met with the pastor of this new church, and he was telling us the story of how the church had started. And so this pastor of this church, he had been a worship pastor on the staff of a larger church. And there was, in that larger church, there was a group of people who did not like various things about that church. And so this group of people kind of found their way to one another. They began meeting together and kind of putting together their complaints about things in the church and things they didn't like. And this worship pastor kind of found his way in because he kind of agreed with them about a lot of their complaints and criticisms. And so he became part of this group. And so he was telling us kind of the, the problems that they had with the larger church. And most of their complaints were what I would call trivial. They were things like, well, the kind of worship music we don't really like and the style of the preaching and the way this guy leads over here and these things over there. But nothing really big like theology or they've abandoned the gospel or character issues, just trivial things. Ultimately, this worship pastor's group of people decided to leave that church and to start their own church. Probably about 50 people or so with this worship pastor starting their own church. And now it's about a year later. And how do you think things were going in this new church, this worship pastor? Well, he's telling us we've got all kinds of challenges and problems. People are arguing. They can't agree on how to do this or that. People aren't willing to serve and help out unless they're in charge and it's their way. They're not getting along. They're complaining. They're not resolving their differences. The words are sharp and unkind and ungracious. And so here's this worship pastor, now the pastor of this new church, venting his frustrations about how hard it is to lead this group of people. Later that day, the older pastor that I was traveling with, he and I got back in the car to drive away. And as soon as we were in the car and pulling out of the parking lot, he looked at me and said, is it any wonder that they're having all these problems? The church was started and built upon selfish people who insisted things had to be their way or the highway. So they left the other church when they didn't get their way, and nothing has changed in their hearts. And if anything, they're even more emboldened now, feeling even more entitled to their selfishness now that they've started this church. And so this older pastor who's been around for a long time, he had started several churches, done all these different things. His prediction with me in the car was that this church would last not another year, probably less than that before they all broke up because eventually they would realize it's impossible for everyone to always have their way and to always be first. I've not heard anything about that church since then. I can't even remember where it was or what the name of it was. But looking back now with this passage in mind, I wonder what was that church actually proclaiming in their gatherings? What would Paul have said about their gatherings? I spent time among them. And from what I remember of my experience there, I didn't hear anything about Jesus. I didn't see anything about Jesus, that he's died, rose again, coming again, life, salvation in him. 
Good news, peace, service, humility, none of those messages were on display. And so hopefully they did what Paul says here, examined themselves, judged themselves, humbled themselves, repented, recognized Jesus, the grace of God through Jesus, and learned to show that same grace and kindness and service and humility to one another. Well, I trust today that that gives us plenty to think about. We would perhaps partake of the Lord's Supper today, but somebody already ate it all, so sorry for that in the children's sermon. Uh, but in all seriousness, we, we partake of the Lord's Supper itself on the first Sunday of each month here in our church, also at Thanksgiving and Good Friday, so 14 times per year. And we'll have the Lord's table here and available in two weeks from today on the first Sunday of May. Between now and then, I would encourage all of us to do what Paul says. Examine our hearts. Judge ourselves. And the goal in that is not to be our own greatest critics, picking apart all our weaknesses and struggles, because we all know we have weaknesses and struggles. When we see those things, we should confess them before God, and they should take us to the Lord's table to partake and to remember again his grace to us. But to examine ourselves and to ask the deep question of our own heart, do I belong to Jesus? Is my heart centered upon Jesus who died for me, who was gracious and kind to me, who gave himself, forgiving my sins, reconciling me to God? And is my life being shaped by Jesus? Especially when I gather together with other Christians in the church, am I being selfish in how I treat others? Am I thinking of myself first? Or am I being like Jesus, humbling myself, giving myself for the sake of others? And may we, Grace Church of Mapton, continue to grow in the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus, so that his body and blood are honored here among us, proclaimed here among us, so that our church gatherings will be for the better rather than for the worse as we remember, celebrate, and proclaim Jesus and the great salvation we have through him. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.